0: Well, good morning. Please turn in your Bible to Isaiah 43 verse 1. Uh, My wife Brooke grew up in rural farm country in southern Illinois, and uh, her parents bought, when she was very young, her parents bought uh, a parcel of land that was 40 acres. On that land was an abandoned house, an abandoned farmhouse from the 1800s that had flood damage downstairs and fire damage upstairs. And I think they lived in just one room of the house at first, and her parents slowly renovated uh, the entire house. Uh, That's the house that she grew up in. And uh, for a period of years there, uh, they also kept sheep on the property. They had sheep and as a spiritual shepherd, of course, I'm fascinated by what it means to keep sheep, and so I've asked them to share their stories over the years of keeping sheep. And one of the most unforgettable stories about the sheep they kept was that uh, at one point they had this odd sheep that, that self-identified, we would probably say it this way, it self-identified as a canine. Uh, This sheep became aloof from the other sheep and was more comfortable in the company of their sheepdog, Holly. This sheep would even eat Holly's dog food, right? Instead of eating the food the other sheep ate, when Holly would try to round up the sheep, this sheep would run, you know, behind Holly trying to herd the sheep along with the sheepdog. She wouldn't associate with the other sheep. And in time, this poor, confused soul came to a sad end when she decided to be the sheep that ran with coyotes. Um, But in a bitter twist of fate, this particular sheep was born on Brooke's birthday. It was a special sheep born on Brooke's birthday and named Brooke. And so, as a follower of Jesus, Brooke has taken that as a living parable a living parable about finding our identity in Christ in the right place. Spiritually speaking, it's a dangerous thing when God's sheep forget what we are and who we are and fancy ourselves to be other kinds of creatures. To be gripped by God's greatness, which is really the theme of our study in Isaiah… To be gripped by God's greatness means to not only stand, understand who God is, but to understand who we are in relationship to Him and who He says we are. And to preach that is not a challenging sermon. I have a sermon of comfort for you today about who God says we are. It's not this uh, onerous kind of identity that God gives us. In fact, in the passage we come to today, we're going to find that He calls us beloved and precious, and uh, we're called by Him, we're redeemed by Him. Uh, It's important that we understand our identity Uh, And the reason why is because even though it would look like a message of comfort, we still do need to be challenged to recalibrate the way we think to ourselves about ourselves so that we don't try to find our identity in things that are fleeting or temporary or fragile instead of finding our identity in relationship with our Creator. And so, my goal for this morning is to remind you of who God says you are, the way He defines your identity, so that you can have the proper attitudes and make wise choices. And we're going to do that together from Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. And I admit, it is a little bit of a journey. Uh, When I first read these verses… You're probably going to wonder how I get identity out of these, uh, but we're going to go on the journey together, and I think it'll be helpful for us. So, let's read Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 7 together. But now, thus says Yahweh, your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are Mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. "'When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you.' I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. It's becoming increasingly hard not to notice that uh, our culture uh, is falling off the path of wisdom into the ditch of extremes on either side of the road. Good illustrations could be the way that we treat uh, elected representatives or even political arguments, right? On either side of the political spectrum, if uh, an opponent is guilty of any sin, we condemn them as holy and completely corrupt and all their views as suspect. Uh, if a political argument doesn't deliver the results we want when we want them, Uh, We, not only condemn that argument, uh, but we assume that it has nothing valid to say, no valid observations whatsoever about political reality. Our national discourse seems to give ample evidence of more people uh, than ever being willing to throw out the baby with the bathwater, and we need to confess that evangelicals, like us, can participate in this kind of extremism in every realm of life, politically, socially, economically, and theologically. And uh, the typical treatment by evangelicals of this text is a good case in point of extremism. On the one extreme, some Christians run to Isaiah 43 verse 7 and use it as a proof text for all people being made to glorify God, and they apply it indiscriminately to everyone and anyone without noting that in context God is speaking to Israel. On the other extreme, some Christians who are zealous for the Bible to be properly interpreted and applied note that this text was written to the nation of Israel, but they fail to work out how it would have any relevance for those of us who are not physical descendants of Abraham, how this would be of relevance to us in the church age. Well, to avoid both extremes, we're going to study the the meaning of the text to its original audience. What did this sound like to the people of Isaiah's day that Isaiah spoke this to in 700 B.C. in Judah? What did it sound like to them? And then we'll talk about how it's relevant for those of us in the church age. So, fear not all you lovers of the Westminster Catechism, all you fans of John Piper, I will eventually say that all people uh, are made uh, to glorify God and that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. I will get there, I promise, but I want to note that this was written to Israel first. And as we look at these seven verses, perhaps the two most important observations to make about them Uh, Is the first word of verse one, and then also the verb tenses God uses to talk about uh, his dealings with Israel. Uh, Let me say just a few words about both of those. The first word in verse one is the word but. It alerts us to the fact that there's a contrast going on here, so we need to look at what came before and not just look at these seven verses out of context. What comes before this is that Israel's spiritual failure. Uh, is it has resulted in a national captivity for the northern tribes. That's in chapter 42. And in chapter 42, God compares that Assyrian captivity to a purging fire. Look at chapter 42, verse 25. "'So God poured out on Israel the heat of His anger and the fierceness of battle, and it set Him aflame all around, yet He did not recognize it. It burned Him, but He paid no attention.'" The end of chapter 42 is speaking poetically about God disciplining His chosen people for their idolatry uh, with a captivity, and when Isaiah wrote this to the people of Judah, the people of Judah in the south had seen the northern tribes carried into captivity, but even as they were carried into captivity, they were so spiritually blind that they didn't see what was going on for what it was, even in the middle of being burned by a captivity, They didn't repent of their idolatries like the prophets were calling them to do. That's the context that sets up the passage today. And in addition to witnessing that captivity, Isaiah has now prophesied to Judah that there's a coming captivity for them, but it will be in Babylon if they won't repent of their idolatries. And so, starting in chapter 43, we move from that warning... To then see, uh, in 42, the people were under the fire of God's purging through a captivity. But in chapter 43, we're going to see that the Lord promises that even when they pass through the fire… It won't burn the people of Judah. And the reason for that is this. In God's covenant with Israel, I know many of you remember this, in God's covenant with Israel, there were blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience. But more important than those blessings and cursings was God's promise that He would always be with His people. Even in the middle of bringing cursings and discipline upon them, He still was with them for their good to refine them and to purify them as a nation." And all of that comes, all of that awareness that this is the context of the passage, it comes from taking that first word of verse 1 seriously and not just uh, reading these verses and interpreting them on their own because they're one of our more favorite portions of Isaiah. All of that understanding comes from the context that's provided by that first word in verse 1. The second observation to make about this paragraph is the verb tenses God uses to speak of His mighty acts. In verses 1 through 3, they're all in the past tense. They're all reminding Judah of what He's done for them in the past, His faithfulnesses to them. But in verses 4 through 7, the verb tenses change, and they become future tense verbs that point to what He promises to do for them in the future, So, I've divided the passage into two, to two parts. God will provide for His people security in impending trouble, verses 1 through 3, and assurance of future hope, verses 4 through 7. Let's look at the security He promises first. Again, in verse 1, we read, But now, thus says Yahweh your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are Mine." This verse contains the most oft-repeated command in the Bible. That command is, do not fear. Now, it comes to us in a variety of forms. Do not fear, fear not, be anxious for nothing, be courageous, take courage, uh, do not be afraid, right? But the main idea is the same do not be afraid, fear not. And then usually in the Old and New Testament, God gives a promise to accompany the command. Usually it comes to us in the form of, fear not, for I am with you. And you actually see God does that in uh, verse 5. He gives this command again, verse 5, do not fear, for I am with you. So, God promises His presence. He won't abandon those whom He's paid a price to redeem, right? The people of Judah aren't alone. Yahweh will be with them through good times and bad at home in Judah or away in another country in captivity. And He will not abandon them because He created them, He formed them, and because He's the one who's redeemed them. Now, that Hebrew word redeemed, it was used in the Old Testament for a hero who purchased someone who was helpless from a position of slavery or paid off a debt uh, for someone else who couldn't afford to pay back their debt, or uh, it was used for a hero who made financial restitution for someone who was in trouble legally because uh, they had financially defrauded or harmed someone else, and that hero paid that financial penalty in full, made the restitution on the other person's behalf, and rescued them from the penalty of the law. Uh, Perhaps a good picture here in verse 1 from the Old Testament would be glad-hearted Boaz uh, redeeming and then marrying Ruth. That's the idea of what God has done with Israel. And note the tenderness of this redemption. Verse 1 ends with these words, I've called you by name, you are mine. Now, this applies to Old Testament Israel, obviously, but it's abundantly clear that God also uh, chooses individuals by name. You see Him working that way in the Old Testament, right? He calls out Abram by name, Then He renames him Abraham and chooses to bless not only Abraham, but all of his descendants. Uh, He called Isaiah by name. We saw that back in Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to find out next week, I'm really looking forward to it, Isaiah 45, God is going to call out an individual by name ahead of time, Cyrus the Persian, because He's going to use Cyrus, even though Cyrus is a Gentile, for a very special task. Uh, And what that makes clear for us as New Testament Christians is this, it's not just that God chooses nations and groups of people, He also chooses individuals and calls them by His own name. So, as a church, when we look at, for instance, His chosen servant who went to the cross, uh, His chosen servant went to the cross with individual names, names of those God loved, loved and chose to redeem. Groups of people, like church membership rosters or families, Christian families, they are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Individual names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And what that means for us as a church is this. When we study what the New Testament teaches about the doctrine of salvation we often study it systematically. We did that just a few years ago in our adult Sunday school class. We looked at the doctrine of soteriology. We used Dr. Ryrie's excellent book, Basic Theology, and we studied what the New Testament teaches about salvation systematically. But we need to remember even while we do that study, which is a good and healthy study, we need to remember that as we study Salvation, we have not been given a system of redemption. We've been given a redeemer who calls people by name, gathers them in his arms, and says, I love you, you are mine. And because God has called Israel by name and redeemed uh, her as a people group, Judah can have confidence that when she goes through trials in the future, she will be preserved. That's actually verse 2. That's what verse 2 is talking about. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. This is a beautifully poetic way of giving Judah comfort in the middle of her trials. And I find the imagery moving, but notice that it isn't just very poetic and picturesque, it also conveys content, right? It moves from the general to the specific, from waters to rivers, from fire to the flame. And that communicates, I think, both general and specific trials. It also deals with the extremes of water and fire. And I think what the poetry is communicating is that uh, in any and every trial Judah could go through. God will be with her. This establishes the principle that Judah knows God is with her even in the middle of difficult times, and that's very important because this coming Babylonian exile that uh, Isaiah has prophesied that's not going to be like the only trial the nation goes through. There's going to be lots of trials before the captivity. There's going to be trials after the captivity, and this establishes the principle that God will be with them. So, note the promise in this verse. This is very important. We need to define this. The promise is not that Judah will never face floods or forest fires. The promise is, though, that she can survive them because God will be with her. He promises her presence. Even in the coming exile, they can rely on the changeless reality of being God's cherished people. And when they doubt God's loving care for them, which all of us struggle with, every human being struggles with that, when they doubt that, they can always find comfort by looking at how God has been faithful to them in the past. That's verse 3. Look at verse 3. For I am Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place." Now, that name, that title for God, when, when you see uh, the Holy One of Israel, I've told you before, that's Isaiah's favorite name for God. And, and other prophets use that name, but you see it most in the book of Isaiah. And so, when I'm reading other prophets and they speak of the Holy One of Israel, I can't help it. I think of Isaiah, because uh, that's where you find this name for God. Well, the name uh, Yahweh your God, that also harkens back to a particular book of the Bible that uses that name over and over and over and over, and that is Exodus. You may not see this as an American Christian reading in English translation, but for the Hebrew, this harkens uh, back to the Exodus from Egypt. Egypt right? Uh, That's what this is about. It emphasizes… this name for God emphasizes His self-existence, right? Yahweh, I am that I am, and your God, the God who chose Israel. Uh, Abraham didn't choose God. He didn't seek out Yahweh, find Him, and then choose Him. Yahweh found Abraham and chose Him and His descendants. And this Yahweh became a Savior to the people of Israel. Israel, uh, and He became a Savior to them. When, when you use the word Savior in Old Testament Hebrew, that word was used to speak of a hero who saved someone from a helpless condition uh, and, and from a calamity that was coming upon them, right? So, uh, I think of it was hard for me to read this and not think of like superheroes and Marvel movies where, you know, the hero saves someone from a calamity that's about to befall them. That's the idea of Savior here. So, how did the Holy One of Israel save Israel when she was helpless in the past? Well, He saved her from a slavery she couldn't rescue herself from in Egypt, and He, according to this verse, gave Egypt as her ransom and Cush and Seba in her place. Now, you know about the nation of Egypt. I'm sure all of you can find that on a map. Cush was an African nation to the south of Egypt along the Nile River, and Seba was even further south below… well, for us looking at a map that's oriented to the north. Uh, Seba is even further south of Cush along the Nile River, and during the time of the Exodus, under the pharaoh Amenhotep II, if you don't mind, that's who I think the pharaoh of the Exodus was, but uh, uh, under Amenhotep II, Seba was under Egyptian influence. And the idea is this, in what sense did God give Egypt as a ransom for Israel? Well, when you look at their deliverance, economically speaking, it was at the expense of Egypt and Cush and Seba that God liberated Israel. Indeed, if you remember, God so moved in the hearts of the Egyptians that they gave the Israelites gifts of gold and silver and jewelry as they left, and in that way, Israel plundered the Egyptians. Now, as we move into verse 4, the idea of God redeeming His people, it continues, and this idea of giving other nations in exchange for Israel, that continues, but there is a subtle shift that occurs that's easy to miss if you're not paying close attention. See if you can catch it with me, verse 4. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Though the idea of redemption continues, here in verse four, God's descriptions of his description, sorry, of His acts for Israel, it changes from "I have," past tense to "I will," future tense. Uh, you see fear is always an issue of what we're concerned could happen in the future, right? And God is addressing that now with Judah. And the way He describes Israel is so tender. I love it. Look at these words. They're precious, they're honored, they're loved. And there's a richness here, but the richness of being precious and honored and loved is actually found in the verb tenses of these words. Uh, The perfect tense is used in Hebrew, and that communicates a past decision by God with good consequences that continue in the present and into the future. So, what God is saying in essence is this, you have been… Still are and always will be loved by me. Um, You'll always be precious in my sight. And when he adds, I will give other men in your place, I'll give other nations in exchange for your life, he's communicating, in essence, I would give anything for you. There's no price that's so too high for me to pay for you. No cost is too high for God to ransom his people. Now in Hebrew, the words forgive and exchange here they're used in other contexts to speak of a groom paying a bride price, like Jacob did for Rachel. You remember that in the book of Genesis? Jacob was willing to work uh, for Rachel's dad for seven years as a bride price for her. Uh, And uh, it's so beautiful in Genesis. It says that those seven years were only like a few days in his sight because of his love for Rachel. But what I think sets God's part Uh, God's love for Israel apart from, say, Jacob's love for Rachel and what He gave as a bride price for her is this. God manifests His grace towards Israel in that He loves Israel without the self-delusion of some grooms, right? I mean, think about it. When, When God chose Israel, He knew exactly what He was getting into. Some grooms can see that their bride is difficult person, has this issue or that. They married the girl anyway, right? Uh, but uh, God knew exactly what He was getting into when He chose Israel, and He still loves her, and she is still precious in His sight. Now, the verses that come next in 5 through 7, they illustrate poetically that God is willing to pay any price to ransom His But before I read them to you, I want to set them up with a hypothetical question. Remember, uh, Isaiah is speaking to Judah. This is about 700 BC. The northern tribes have gone into a captivity in Assyria. God is threatening to send Judah to a Babylonian captivity if they won't repent of their idolatry. And the hypothetical question I have is this, what if at some future point Israel wasn't taken captive by one nation? What if they were scattered to the four corners of the world and foreigners dominated their land and they had no nation and they were just scattered among all the nations of the earth? What then? Well, look at verses 5 through 7. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring My sons from afar and My daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by My name and whom I have created for My glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made." If Israel were ever scattered globally, and all the Gentile nations of the earth chose to make the children of Abraham, their captives, God would still choose Israel over every nation. For Isaiah's generation, this is a prophecy of future hope. Even if the worst happens, God will not abandon Israel. And for future generations of Israel that actually were scattered to the four corners of the earth, this has been a prophecy of present hope that God will not abandon His people, and a day is coming when He will regather them to their land." Now, why would God do this for Israel? Well, it's clear from the Old Testament and from the teaching of the prophets that this ransom is not due to any intrinsic worth on the part of Israel. It's because God in His loving kindness chose them, and they now belong to Him. They're part of His family, so He will redeem them. And when it comes to Israel… We also need to say this, and you see Moses, very concerned about this, Exodus 34. God's reputation is on the line. If God doesn't come through for Israel, if they were ever to be, let's say, extinguished as a people group, then the watching world would say that Yahweh is no different than the other gods, except He's worse because in His arrogance, He claimed He was the only true God right? Uh, The claims that God makes, uh, that Yahweh makes in the Old Testament would be verifiably false if the Jews were ever eliminated off the earth. But the Jewish people have not ceased to exist. In the 2,700 years since Isaiah penned these words, God has protected Israel, He's upheld them, and He's answered uh, every promise He's given to them. God has been faithful to His chosen people. That's the message of Isaiah 43 verses 1 through 7. It's a message of comfort for Judah because of her identity as God's chosen people. But how are these verses relevant for us? I mean, as far as I know, I don't think any of us in the room have uh, Jewish blood. We're, We're not descendants of Abraham by birth. And so, how do these verses apply to us? Well, the same God who says that Israel is called by His name and created for His glory says to the church through the Apostle Paul that all of us who follow Jesus, he says this, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And what happens when those who've been adopted into God's family walk in the good works He's prepared? We bring God glory, right? The story of all who follow Jesus runs so parallel to these verses. It's hard to be a Christian and not read them as if they were written directly to us, right? But when we read these verses, knowing the promises God has made through Christ to us, uh, understanding that this was originally Israel, but knowing the promises we have through Christ, they take on a rich meaning for the Christian. So, let's go back through two of them, just two of them now, and apply them to us as New Testament Christians. In Proverbs 23, verse 7, we read this, As a man thinks within himself, so is he. In Proverbs 4, 23, we read, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Friends, I would submit to you that how we think to ourselves about ourselves is something we need to watch over and guard carefully. What we say to ourselves about our identity is a matter of spiritual life and death. Uh, Paul Tripp has said something to the effect that no counselor is more influential in your life than you are because nobody talks to you more than you do. What you say to yourself about yourself is a matter of spiritual life and death. Your view of yourself forms attitudes and actions that have a profound and life-shaping influence on the story of your life, and we need to listen to what the Good Shepherd says about our identity as beloved sheep, lest we begin to fancy ourselves as canines and try to run with wolves." right? There's a spiritual danger here. And one of the temptations that plagues us is this tendency of our hearts to look for identity outside of our relationship with our Creator. And that temptation becomes acute if you are particularly successful at or particularly enjoy certain things, right? It's hard for those who enjoy their careers and are successful at them not to lose their identity in their work. This is especially true if the world around you applauds you and bestows on you a special honor and a special status and a special credit for being a virtuous person because of the work you do. Uh, Christians who are more relational and who happen to be in a happy marriage can lose their identity in being married. Parents can lose their identity in being a great dad or the best homeschool mom. Those who are particularly gifted at athletics or beautiful or intelligent find that the world applauds them for those characteristics, and it's hard not to begin to find identity in those things. The problem is none of those things can become your identity. They can't bear the weight of that, number one. But number two, they're also temporary. Eventually, the most athletic get injured the most beautiful people age. The most intelligent find that life takes them into into situations where they're not the most intelligent person in the room. Every parent finds that children grow up and leave the home, and because they have their own hearts and make their own decisions, even parents who are the most loving and uh, Christian homes that are the most loving and the best examples of what it means to follow Christ find that Not every child chooses to follow Christ for themselves, and there's grief in that. And even the children who do choose to follow Christ, they don't always end up sharing your theology or your values, and that's difficult, right, as a parent. Um, Those who are married know that their spouses can be taken away from them in death. And all of us understand that careers, by their very nature, are temporary things. They don't last forever. And so, I would preach to you through preaching to myself the message you need to hear. My core identity is not pastor or husband to Brooke or father to Grant, Claire, and May. My core identity is an adopted child of God through Christ, right? Uh, that title, pastoral work, and those people, that could all be taken away from me. But if it is, as, as grievous as that would be, as terrible as that would be for me, uh, I would not lose my identity or my sense of self because positions and titles and people and achievements come and go, but our identity is hidden in Christ Jesus, and we need to remind ourselves of that. And with that in mind then, let's look at what God says our identity is just in verses 1 and 2 of this passage. Obviously, these were written to Israel, but we can import what the New Testament says and how the New Testament uses these terms. Again, in verse 1, but now thus says Yahweh, your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are Mine. The same God that said those words to national Israel says through the psalmist that He created you as an individual person. He formed you and knitted you together in your mother's womb If you've confessed your sins and placed your faith in Christ, the New Testament says that He has redeemed you, but you haven't been redeemed from slavery in Egypt. You've been redeemed from the addiction to and the penalty of your sins, and you weren't redeemed by God, uh, you know, paying Egypt and Cush and Seba for you. You were redeemed by the blood of His precious Son. Um, And not only that, Uh, Not only that, if you have chosen to follow Christ, you are now called by God's name. You are His own. That's your identity. So, what attitude should flow from this awareness of our identity then? Well, verse 1 makes it crystal clear, actually, by giving us a command. The attitude that should flow is this, God knows me by name. He takes a personal interest in me. I've been chosen by Him in spite of my sin. Therefore, I don't have to fear if God would give His own Son to redeem me, how will He not, along with His Son, also give me everything else I need? I don't have to fear because God has chosen me and redeemed me. That would be an attitude, an identity attitude that flows from verse 1. Let's look again at verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. What's the application? The same God who used political calamity to purify the nation of Israel says through the author of Hebrews that God disciplines every one of His adopted sons and daughters so that we will share in His holiness, right? Uh, His discipline hurts because God can spank like really hard. Uh, It hurts, right? but the discipline is for a good purpose that we learn to share in His moral character. And when He brings trials in our lives, God promises He'll be with us, right? And the New, a New Testament counterpart would be Jesus saying to the church, uh, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. It was actually this very verse, Isaiah 43 verse 2, that inspired the author of how firm a foundation to pen the following words. And I I love How Firm a Foundation is one of my favorite hymns, but one thing you have to notice about it is that it comes to us in a different form than other hymns, right? Most hymns uh, have us singing words that are true to God, right? But in How Firm a Foundation… The writer pictures God speaking to you, and then we sing those words as if God is saying these words to our heart. Listen to the way that the hymn writer portrays God speaking to us about trials. In one of the verses, he says this, When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not you overflow. For I will be with you, your trouble to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flame will not hurt you, I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. When God makes us pass through the waters or walk through the fire, He goes with us and He uses the experience to refine our faith so that we would share in more of His holy character." And I would say to you, brothers and sisters, we have no less security in the face of impending trouble than Judah did in Isaiah's day. We don't have less of an assurance of future hope than Judah did in 700 B.C. Actually, I would argue with you, we have even more reason to hope. And so, uh, in the foyer, uh, we have a track that we're giving away as a resource. You can find this in the back on the foyer. Uh, and it's something we're giving away. It's a poem based on the King James Version of Isaiah 43, verse 2, and I want to read it to you to conclude the sermon because I find these words so precious. "'Is there any heart discouraged as it journeys on its way? Does there seem to be more darkness than there is of sunny day? Oh, it's hard to learn the lesson as we pass beneath the rod.'" that the sunshine and the shadow serve alike the will of God. But there comes a word of promise, like the promise in the bow, that however deep the waters, they shall never overflow. When the flesh is worn and weary and the spirit is depressed, and temptations sweep upon it like a storm on ocean's breast, there's a haven ever open for the tempest-driven bird. There's a shelter for the tempted in the promise of the Word for the standard of the Spirit shall be raised against the foe, and however deep the waters, they shall never overflow. When a sorrow comes upon you that no other soul can share, and the burden seems too heavy for the human heart to bear, there is one whose grace can comfort if you'll give him an abode. There's a burden-bearer ready if you'll trust him with your load. For the precious promise reaches to the depths of human woe, that however deep the waters, they shall never overflow. When the sands of life are ebbing, and I know that death is near, when I'm passing through the valley and the way seems dark and drear, I will reach my hand to Jesus. In His bosom I shall hide, and twill only be a moment till I reach the other side. It's then the fullest meaning of the promise I shall know. When thou passest through the waters, they shall never overflow. Let's pray.